First Samuel. We, uh, this is a neat story. And in Christendom, the cave of Adullam has been used for the last 2,000 years to describe a moment in a person's life when things are just bad. David is running from Saul. He doesn't know his next steps, and he ends up literally living in a cave. And the cave of Adullam is something that we look at and we can relate to. In times in my own life, when it seems like my life is grinding the life out of me, and to me, and this is just, I'm sharing my heart with you, the hard times aren't when something big happens, somebody that I love dies, when, when when something big happens. To me, the hard times are those day after day after day after day after day grinding moments that just exhaust you. I remember our last days in North Carolina, I worked for a boss who hated me, didn't want me there. I was a contractor. She wanted me to get fired more than anything because it would prove that she was right. She didn't want to hire me. She didn't want me there. And she went out of her way to make my life miserable. And every morning I would get up and go, oh, God, please cause there to be a wreck. I just don't want to go to that place today. I would sit down with my kids and go, seriously, do we have to eat every day? I mean, could we do like an every fifth day kind of thing? I can get a job at the Texaco pump of gas or something. Those moments grind your life away. And here we see David in that moment in the caves of Adullam. We saw last week how he's running from Saul, and he ends up in these caves. Now, when David got to the caves, his brothers and his father and his mom found out where he was. They knew they weren't safe where they were, just living there in Bethlehem. And so they fled their home and came and joined him. The Bible says that all these worthless men, guys that owed debt, guys that, that had problems, guys who'd failed before in their life, are drawn to David because David's fighting for a cause. And so they don't really care that much about the cause, is what the text insinuates. They're just coming to fight. And so he's surrounded by these kind of people. He ends up realizing that I can't be mobile if I'm carrying my mom and my, my dad or, and, and the grandkids and babies around with me. And so he goes to the king of Edom and asks him, can I put, put my family here so they'd be safe? And he does. But while he's there in Edom... The prophet Gad came to David and said, you don't stay here. You don't stay in the caves. You need to go. Go back to Judah. And so David takes off and goes. Well, Saul, in the story, we're given this scene where Saul is sitting around with his boys and he's gropping and complaining about David. He said, hey, why is it that y'all didn't tell me about Jonathan? He actually throws his own son under the bus and he's like, hey, why didn't y'all tell me that Jonathan was going to go in against me? I'm hearing word that you guys are going and supporting David. Hey, how many times, you a bunch of Benjamites, has David ever given you vineyards or David given you land? If you want to hook yourself up, you better support me. Well, while he's there, remember back in the story about David when he was with the priest last week, there was a guy that was there, his name was Doeg, and Doeg pipes up and he says, hey, you know what? 
When David was at the priest's house, the priest gave him some food and gave him Goliath's sword. And so David, uh, Saul is angry and he sends for the high priest. So the high priest comes, Ahimelech, to answer the king. Now, Ahimelech doesn't really even understand what this argument's about. It's kind of like politics. You, you see the people, yeah, yeah, and back and forth. You're like, I, what are they even arguing about? And so Ahimelech is like, isn't David like your best warrior? I mean, isn't he the guy that, that serves you well? And Saul is all on top of him, and he gets angrier and angrier because Ahimelech is not doing exactly what he tells him to do. And finally, Saul turns to one of his guards and says, kill him. And his guard says, I'm not killing a man of God. So Saul is now rabid, and he says, who here will kill Ahimelech? Well, Odoeg, the loser from the priest who was gossiping, was willing to take it from gossip to the next step. He says, I'll kill him. And then Doeg kills Ahimelech. And then Doeg goes and killed all the priests. Now, there's a funny play in the language here that you may, may have missed When God commanded Saul to go to the Philistines and kill everybody, he used a particular verbiage. When Doeg goes and kills all the Philistines, disobeying God, the exact same words are used. Saul didn't obey God when he was told to and then took matters into his own hands and disobeyed God when he wasn't supposed to. And the text says, And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priest, and he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. He put to sword, again, exact same words, both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep, he put to the sword. We see Saul completely unhinged. He slowly marches from an egotistical, scared Boy who can shave now to where he's just lost it and he's lashing out. One guy survives, Abiathar, and Abiathar immediately goes to David. He comes to David, tells him what happened. David says, I got you, Abiathar. You stick with me. Now, David finds out in the middle of all this that the Philistines are going and stealing the food in a town called Kelia. Now, it's not even like a, for, for Victor, it's not like they're, they're trying to cut them off so the city will fall. They're just going in and stealing the food and leaving them there to starve. So David says, I'm going to go defend those people. Nobody asked him to from Kelia. He just says, there's a wrong being done. I'm going to right the wrong. But the first thing he does is he gets on his knees and he prays, God, should I go do this? God says, go. Well, he goes to all of his boys and says, hey, come on, let's go. Let's go over here and, and, and uh, fight these Philistines. And they say, David, have you lost your mind? You realize that we're fleeing from Saul, right? You realize that we're not just out here. This is not a camping trip. We're doing something. So David's like, well, that's a good thought. He takes their advice. He goes back to God. And he says, God, should I go? And God says, go, I'm going to deliver them into your hands. So off he goes. And sure enough, God not only delivers the Philistines into David's hands, he gives them all the other things that the Philistine raiders have stolen. So now David's getting rich. And David gets all this food that he can give to the people of Kelia. 
Saul finds out that David's there, and Saul starts, uh, you know, kind of like in the old westerns, he's riding as hard as he can for Keely. And David is there. Well, David, again, logically thinking through this, he's like, well, the people of Keilah, I just saved their lives. I've just given them a bunch of food. They'll protect me. But he doesn't trust his own common sense, and he goes to God and says, what's going to happen, God? Should I stay here? Will the people of Keilah give me up to Saul? And God says, they will give you up. God knows human nature a little bit better than we do. And so David cuts it. He heads out. Saul continues to chase after David. And we have all these stories where Saul is after him here, there, and everywhere. In fact, they end up in a town where um, Saul finds out that he is. Saul turns to go uh, attack him. And just as he's coming, he finds out that the um, Philistines are attacking another place. And so Saul gets to where he's about to catch him and has to turn back to uh, uh, to the Philistines, and they named the name of that place the Rock of Escape. And so David goes from there and lived in the strongholds of Engadai. Now, let's think about this. I, I think this, these two chapters are interesting in that you have, on one hand, you slowly see Saul falling apart and becoming less and less of a man, and you see David growing from a boy into a king. You see, he goes from Goliath, where it's just me versus him, to now it's me and all these people who are dependent on me. Because really the mark of a man is not that you can stand there by yourself, but it's that other people can depend on you standing there. We see Saul getting to the point that he's literally running his mouth to, to build himself up, and this is just for free. If you're around somebody that runs their mouth and cuts other people down to make themselves look better, you need to get away from that person. Because if they're doing that to somebody else, they're probably going to do that about you with, with somebody else. That's for free. You can just take that any way you want to. Saul is running his mouth about his own son, putting his own son down. The future king of Israel. He's nanny, nanny, nanny. And nanny, 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 nanny. And yet we see David, people being drawn to him. Men who just want a second chance. People who, like his mom and dad are looking to him to support him. David is growing and to be a man. And so this week as I've meditated on this text and I've thought about this text, I've thought about how we do a really poor job of painting a picture of biblical manhood, and these texts that we just walked through the story do an excellent job. I remember a couple of years ago, I had a guy, he wasn't even from our community, he came here, his wife and he were in marriage counseling, and he came to me and said, my wife uh, and I are going to get a divorce, um, we've gone to marriage counseling, she, she uh, said that, she, that I'm not the spiritual leader in my family, and that I'm not showing any fruit in my life. And she said there was no point in us going to any more counseling. And so we're getting a divorce. And he said, I just want to be honest with you. I don't even know what she's talking about. I have no idea what she's saying. I don't understand the concept. I don't understand the construct. You know what? I get up every day. This guy worked in construction. He's like, I get up every day at 6 o'clock. I go, I work 10 hours a day, and I come home. What does she want me to do? She want me to go work with orphans or something at night? I just, I, I know that I'm not at church every time the doors open. 
how am I supposed to? I'm providing for this family. And he had no idea what the, uh, an idea of a picture of what a godly man looks like. In his mind, a godly man was some wussy dude who went around and worked in an orphanage all the time. And he's like, I can't do that. And as I thought about that, and I've thought about this text, i got to say, men, I'm sorry, in the church, we do an absolutely terrible job of defining what it means to be a godly man. It seems like we go in either one of two ways. We either define a godly man as this wussy guy who lets everybody walk over the top of him, who, I don't know, we somehow confuse the word meek and weak. And we've confused the idea of humility with the idea of passivity. And they're all very different things. And so, I mean, even if you, can, can we just be real honest in here? Can, can I be honest and not make everybody mad? Probably not going to make a couple of you mad. You know that there were no cameras when Jesus was alive? Did you realize that? And so most of the pictures that we have of Jesus, where he looks like a really skinny, white, skin, blue-eyed, kind of flock of seagulls, haircut. That's not Jesus. We don't, I mean, we know he was a Jewish guy in the first century. We don't know exactly what he looked like, but I know for a fact he didn't look like some guy in Renaissance England. And so the images that we put up of Jesus, some of the songs that we sing make it sound like Jesus is my boyfriend. And, and you know what? I got to say, I feel uncomfortable when we're talking about sitting in Jesus' lap and rubbing his beard or whatever some of the songs are. And I'm like, I don't, I don't want to sing this. Can we not sing this? And so I know that other guys are feeling the same way. And we send this image out that to be a Christian, you got to be a girly man. Am I the only one that feels like sometimes we give that impression? Because all the guys are looking at me like they're scared. Like, i got to go go home with this woman, and I don't know what you're talking about, but I'm not agreeing. <laughs> so it seems like the opposite side of that, the reaction to that, is from like the Mars Hill model, where to be a Christian man, you got to be a jerk. Where, you know, woman, go make me a swimmage. Ephesians says you to obey. So Obey. And so it seems like we have this two extremes where either we're saying to be a Christian godly man, you got to be a wimp, or to be a Christian godly man, you got to be a jerk. You're just a jerk with a Jesus fish on your truck. I, I, neither of these are the biblical model. And so here we have a text where we see Saul being a fraud, a fake godly man. And we see David being a man after God's heart. I read these two chapters of the book of 1 Samuel, and the whole time I'm going, I want to be that guy. I want to be the kind of man that people want to come crowd around me. Hey, I want what he's got. I want to be that kind of guy. I want to be the kind of guy that people are depending on me, and they know I'm going to do what I say I'm going to do. I want to be the kind of guy that people can look to me like his mom and dad and say, hey, can you take care of me? This situation is getting out of control. I want to be the kind of guy who when the chips hit, uh, chips are down, I'm mixing metaphors there. <laughs> I just scared my wife really bad. <laughs> Her eyes got that big around. I'll, I'll, I'll recover, it's okay. When the chips are down, that I'm smart enough to go onto my knees. 
I mean, do you see that David, what he's doing here? He's not just being that jerk who's like, we're going to do what I say to do. We see him he- talking to people, listening to, okay, let's just walk through my notes. Okay, so what it's not, it's not a wuss, a wimp, it's not a jerk. And yet, what do we see? We see David being strong, yet dependent. Okay, in this whole story, David is decisive. The people around him are saying, no, you should do this. No, you should do that. No, you should do this. He is decisive. He makes decisions based on the circumstances, and yet he's dependent. Now, this is what I mean by dependent. He's dependent on his God. You see, sometimes, men, we forget that even if we are a grab-your-boots-and-go-to-work-every-day kind of guy, and even if you are somebody who can look at your life and say, I made myself, which is where Tom Harrison's heart and sin tendency lies, that God's the one that gave you the strength to be able to do that, and you didn't get nothing for free. And I see David here saying, all right, let's go take this town. God, be with us. Oh, God, please move. He's dependent on his God, and yet at the same time, he's strong. Now, man, that's a hard balance to achieve. And yet we see David doing it here. And the only way that you're going to be able to do that, man, is if that's your norm. If that's your normal. That as you go through your day, that you're talking to your God. We've talked about how when Paul says pray without ceasing, he's not saying that we don't go to work because we're hanging out in our prayer closet. What he's talking about is the fact that, and I've shared this before, you know we all have an inner monologue, right? I know I'm not the only one that talks to myself all the time. Where you're driving along and you're like, oh my gosh, could this person please take a driving test? (laughs) If I'm in Etowah County and you've all heard me say it, my constant mantra is, it's a merge lane! It's not a pull to the end and stop lane. We don't have those. Merge, merge, merge. So that conversation's going in my mind constantly. If we turn those inner dialogues into, those inner monologues into a dialogue, that as I'm going through my day, instead of going, oh my gosh, I gotta get to the store. I've got 30 minutes before I, if I turn that into a conversation with God, it becomes a prayer. On Wednesday night study, I had someone who asked me, hey, should we pray that God and, and, and da 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 And I, my response was, you should pray to God full stop, period, yes. Whatever is on your heart, that's prayer. There are times when prayer is going to be, thank you, Lord. This is so awesome. I can't believe you're doing this. And there are times when prayer, because what's on your heart is, God, what are you doing? I don't like this. There, right now, as I am walking around, I'm trying to picture where I am. As I'm walking around the high school and middle school and elementary schools praying for those kids, I'm praying, God, please don't let anything happen. Oh, God, we can't handle anything else right now. Oh, God, I pray that you'd protect every one of these kids, protect their hearts, protect their minds. God, help them to grow in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Oh, God, please let these kids get saved. God, I pray that out of these kids in this school, God, that you would raise up people, mighty warriors for your kingdom. I just talk to God about it. I'm not doing it in King James. I'm not saying our most gracious. I'm just talking to God. 
If you were to come up beside me if I'm walking down Air Depot to get around the school, you'd think I've lost my mind. I lost it a long time ago. It's not a new thing. So if that's your norm, then when something happens, you're going to be like David, where you're, you realize that you're dependent. You can't do this life on your own. And when you think you can, sometimes God puts us in a situation where you just straight up can't. And that's not the time to get caught up in your prayer life. I'm just saying. So we see in David a man that is strong yet dependent. He's decisive and yet flexible. Now, I don't know about you guys, and and, Anna, I'm sorry, I'm going to use you as an example. There is nothing in my marriage that drives me more insane than driving down the road going, where do you want to eat, honey? I don't care, wherever you want to eat. All right, well, let's go to Pruitt's. No, I don't eat there. Okay, well, um, how about some, let's go to Firehouse. They're too expensive. And then everything that I, 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 and I have been known to pull the car over and go, I'm not going anywhere until you make a decision. There is nothing I hate more than indecisiveness. And it's not just women, because I've seen guys doing the same thing. I don't know. What do you think we should do? Here we see David being a man who can make a decision and stand behind it. And yet at the same time that he does that, when the guys come to him and say, dude, if we attack that city, you realize we're opening ourselves up to Saul. He's not arrogant to the point that he says, no, I made a decision. We going to do it. He goes back and prays to God again. Now, and when he knows that that's what God wants him to do, whether everybody wants him to do it or not, he does it. Whether everybody thinks it's a good idea or not, he does it. Here at the church, we, and I, I, I just got to be honest, I don't know if, how much you're around here other than Sunday mornings, you personally, but uh, we've got a junk problem. We've got every room that we go into, there's little piles of stuff that was like, you know, that was Meemaw's favorite chair, and so I know the third leg on it's broken, and that the, the cushions are cut, but we can't get rid of it kind of stuff. It's, it's all over the building. And so we actually decided, okay, we're going to go on a junk diet. We're going to go through, and we're going we're gonna to get rid of all this stuff. And so the elders, we, we, the very fact that we had to talk about this, the elders talked about it, and we decided to do it. Now, I guarantee you there's some people that are going to be upset about it. In fact, those are the sort of things that typically cost pastors their jobs. You got rid of Mama's cushion that's been there since 1932 kind of stuff. But sometimes decisions just have to be made, and they're not popular. People don't like it. Here we see David willing to make those decisions and yet being willing for other people to do it. One of the things in the church that my, I've experienced that happens that I love is I'll, I will have an idea and then I will share it with someone and then they, as, as it moves through the, the group of people who are on the, the ministry teams and then through the deacons and through the elders, by the time it comes out the other side, it looks very little like the original idea. But it's because this person's added this and this person's added that and this person's added this. And what comes out the other side is actually God's plan. It was my plan back here and now it's God's plan. Because there are people around you that know more about things than you do. I know that may be shocking information. It's shocking to me. 
We as a church are in the process of going to build a, a, a nursing room because we've got like, you can't, as I said last week, you can't swing a dead cat in this place while hitting a pregnant lady or somebody that just had a kid. And you should stop swinging dead cats around. But um, So we need a room where nursing moms can go and nurse. Well, I told the deacons, we don't need to pick out the chairs. Because if we get a stool that says craftsman on it, we may like it, but that's not what they need. Because you know what? I'm never going to know as much about nursing as a lot of you ladies. That's just reality. There are some subjects that other people know more than you. You need to be willing to get the input of other people. And I see David doing it. And I see Saul doing just the opposite. As the priest is coming to Saul saying, dude, this is a bad idea. David is your faithful servant. You need to listen to him. Saul not only gets angry, he gets angry to the point that he has the man killed for disagreeing with him. I don't know about you, but I've had bosses that were that way. They never killed me, but they made me wish he had. Hey, maybe this is not such a hot idea. Maybe we shouldn't be mopping the carpet. Just thinking that that's a bad idea. Why don't you just shut up and do it? And so a real man is, is decisive yet flexible. And then the final thing that I see in, in this is assertive yet humble. You have no doubt as you read both of these chapters what David's idea is, what he should be doing. And yet I see very little in here of David talking about himself. When it comes to Christian music, if I sit down and look at the lyrics and I see a lot of I's and me's, it's probably not something we should be singing. Because Christianity is not supposed to be about us. It's supposed to be about Him. As I go through my life, if I catch myself always talking about me, that shows me that my heart is not in the right place. As we see Saul arguing for what he's got, wants to do, he says a lot of, what have I provided for you? Who else is going to give you somebody else's vineyard? Who else is going to take the choicest lands away from the rightful owner and give it to you? I am. Me. It's about me. I heard, I think, I don't know who said it. I, I want to say it's C.S. Lewis, but then part of me in the back of my brain is saying it's not true. But somebody, not me, somebody way smarter than me said that true humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking about yourself less. Humility is not thinking, woe is me. Oh, I'm just so sad and pathetic. That's not humility. Humility is not making it about you in the first place. It's not about us. Because you see, the whole theme of Christianity is, is that God loved us so much that he glorified himself by saving us. So that he could say, that one is mine, now watch what I do with him. She is going to make a choice servant of mine. And we don't offer anything in the beginning. We bring nothing to the table in the beginning. He is the one that transforms us. He is the one that saves us. And all the honor and the glory and the praise doesn't come to us. It goes to him. And so men, humility doesn't mean woe is me. I'm just this poor pathetic little guy. No, humility is not making it about you in the first place. 
And so in this story this week, we see a beautiful compare and contrast between Saul as he is going downward and David, who God is using. And I thought about that compare and contrast, uh, and it's beautifully laid out in a song that we sang here just a few weeks ago. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate, on earth is not his equal. We're in a fight. Men, we are in a fight. Ladies, we're in a battle. The devil wants you dead. The enemy has come to seek and steal and destroy. He's come to lie and accuse the brethren. We are in a fight. I was preaching at CR the other day, and I said, look, we want to act like that if I, if I you know, drink beer all the time, smoke a cigarette, and ride around on a Harley, that that's rebellious. That ain't rebellion. Everybody's doing it. Rebellion is saying, me and my family is going to live for the king. And if you think you're having troubles now, try to live for Jesus. The enemy's going to come against you with everything he's got. Martin Luther went on to say, if we in our own strength can fight, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Ask who that may be, Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, or Lord of hosts, his name, from age to age the same. So with Jesus by our side, we can't fight this battle alone. We cannot overcome the enemy on our own. Just try it. Try to white knuckle through your sins and you'll fail every time. Though this world with devil filled should threaten to us, do us, we will not fear for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness, grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. Martin Luther was asked what the little word was. If you just think about it, the little word, in my mind, I've always thought, I've, the whole time that I've read this hymn, and I, this is my favorite hymn, so I'm, I'm cheating a little bit, we would be Jesus, right? But he said that he took this from a passage in the book of Revelation where the Bible accuses the devil of being a liar. That when the devil's at your ear saying you are of no value, you can turn to the enemy and say, liar, Jesus died for me. When the devil's on your ear saying, hey, you deserve better than that. That woman shouldn't treat you this way. You can turn to the devil and say, liar, I esteem her higher than myself because I'm redeemed by the king. That little word is telling the devil who he is. He will lie to you every day. He'll get in your ear every day. You have to be strong. You have to be a warrior. You have to be one that stands and says, come hell or high water, here I stand. And I'm not going to let the little dies of the devil pull me down. Father God, as we come to this time of invitation, I pray that we would be obedient to 1 Corinthians 16 where Paul says, quit ye like men. That every man and woman in here would have the guts and the grace to make a stand for the king. Lord, we thank you so much for this text. We thank you that we see the fall of Saul and the rise of, of David. 
Lord, we thank you that we can see an example in flesh and blood of what a real man looks like. God, I pray that you would help us all to serve you in strength. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name.